This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guest today is Eloisa Lewis. Eloisa is an American permaculture consultant, community-building artist, activist, and healer. With her work as a project manager and educator, she helps guide communities of individuals into holistically regenerative paradigms and specializes in communal practices of decolonization. Eloisa joins me today to talk about her experiences in radical spaces, particularly rainbow gatherings, but also in intentional communities and activist camps, to put the principles of social permaculture into action. Throughout the conversation, she shares the ways those manifest in the acts of nonviolence, communication, and community justice. She also shares how she began down this road, including where she studied permaculture and some of her mentors, should any of you wish to journey down a similar path. Enjoy this conversation with Eloisa, and I'll join you again after. Eloisa, can you give us a bit of your biography and background and how you came to the work of social permaculture, activism, and what it is that you're doing? Absolutely. So my name is Eloisa Lewis, and I'm a former AI researcher who turned to permaculture at the end of my undergraduate studies. I then went on to be living in eco-villages and be participating on the front lines of movements like Occupy, Standing Rock, and other grassroots movements associated with environmental protection. And now I run my own company that's a climate consulting company called New Climate Culture Solutions. And I also have a media production company called Culture Board Productions. And what was it that brought you to doing this? So I guess like being a Mexican-American person who is the child of illegal migrant parentage, I was always aware of the borders that were constructed in the last few hundred years by colonizers on this land and understood from my own personal experience and family what it means to have to cross those borders. So that was really, I guess, like from birth, like I I was aware from a very young age that of my mom's story. And then when I was a teenager, there was SB 1070 in Arizona and a lot of awareness of just the rampant racism that goes on in Arizona. And then the big turning point in my life where I was going from kind of, I would say like an ordinary suburban millennial to being someone who is kind of like a career activist and like an environmental protector, water protector was when I went to my first rainbow gathering in 2013. I was a college student at Northern Arizona University and it was summer and I saw some homeless kids, like kids, like, you know, they were 19, 18 years old and they were flying a sign outside of the local health grocery. And I started talking to them and we became friends and they were the ones who introduced me to rainbow gatherings and invited me to my first one. I'd like to learn more about that gathering and what you encountered there. But before we go on there, you mentioned an SB 1070. And how did that impact your like parents and childhood? I'm not familiar with that. So SB 1070 revolves around like a whole culture of police enforcement here in Arizona. 
And SB 1070 really focuses on um, the ability to ask for documentation. And that's kind of like the center of the legislation is being able to ask for your citizenship and your documentation for very like minor infractions or reasons like that. And then it spirals out into um, larger levels of enforcement of deportation and affiliation with migrants and having the ability to be punished at different degrees of your relationship or your generational relationship to illegal migration. And was that something that your parents or you were stopped for in your childhood? Or is it just one of those things that influenced the culture that you came from to be aware of this and have to respond to it? Right. So this was definitely something that my friends and like just my community was very aware of. My family in particular and myself, I mean, I was not of driving age yet. So I wasn't like concerned on my own level about that because it had to do mostly with like minor traffic stops would then turn into like deportation events but definitely I was aware of it and my parents were aware of it and it was something that was like a hot political topic in even amongst students you know in middle school which was the age that I was when it was first hearing about it so it was like something that was just very uh, on the forefront of people's minds because Arizona is a border state and we have so much migration coming from the south of the border. So I think, yeah, everyone who had any connection to migrants during that time of the initial proposal and the initial push for the legislature was definitely like, it, it sparked open discussions, right? About like, is this okay? What should we be doing? What is illegal migration and what is migration. And so that then gave you a direct experience of national borders and statehood and these international geopolitics. I can see then how that would start to frame some of your position that would then lead into like a personal experience with the work that you're working on now. Absolutely. And of course, like I said, my mother was an illegal child immigrant. So that's really like where it hit my personal chord for me was thinking about my mother's childhood here in the United States and how much it's really changed culturally from like when my mother was a child, how being a migrant and, and being in these border states is much more dangerous than it was back then. It used to be a more open border. It used to be a more friendly border. So like as I grew older, it was becoming a more weaponized border and a more divisive border. And of course, now we have walls being built across this border. And then from that childhood experience and growing up with that as part of your story, where does that intersect then with rainbow gatherings? And could you give us a bit of a background on that for people who aren't necessarily familiar with rainbow gatherings of the rainbow movement? hundred percent. Yes. So how it intersects is, I guess, like I was, I did my first protest activist march when I was 15 years old. And so I was interested in like what, how much power the people have to affect their government and their governance and their environment. And so then I had that seed planted in me already in a few ways. And by the time I got to university, that was when I was introduced to Rainbow Gatherings. But to just give some context as to what gatherings 
are more. It's a pop-up eco-village. So they happen internationally and they started here in the U.S. I believe that the person who started them or like the group of friends who started them are also related to Burning Man. And they're just different approaches to similar similar ideas. And I've also been to Burning Man and I prefer rainbow. I prefer rainbow gatherings to most gatherings and festivals, to be honest, because they're inherently decommodification spaces, which means that they're free food, free water, free education events, and of course, free entry. And then as you started our conversation, you uh, saw some like kids on the street with some signs about this. And that's how you came to this. I was in college at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, Arizona, which is a very beautiful mountain town where most of the activities that you do revolve around nature, kayaking and rock climbing and hiking and all of that is kind of, that's what you do in a town like this because there's not much of a city there. So I was at my local food store in 2013 and I saw some young people that were about 19 years old, 18 years old, who were outside and they were asking for money and for food. And being someone who identifies naturally as a humanitarian and a giver and a sharer, I walked up to these friends now and started just asking them, you know, where they came from because they hitchhiked into town and what they were up to and where they were, what they were going to check out in this part of the country and all that and kind of what their story was, like where they come from and why, why were they doing this? And in that conversation and opening up this conversation with these homeless teenagers that were entering their twenties, I learned about their context and their situation that they had been traveling for years because they had grown up in abusive households where like they had no there was very little good going on for them at home so their better option was to leave school and leave home and try to make their own way and form their own community and in doing that they discovered rainbow gatherings and in meeting them I discovered rainbow gatherings. So that was kind of, yeah, that was the introduction for me. That was the moment after we had been hanging out for, it was about mm, the beginning of May when I met them or middle of May. And the national rainbow gathering in the United States happens every year. The main event day is July 4th. And then there's a, a week, main event week around that. And then there's a month that takes into setting it up and taking it down. So when these friends of mine invited me to go. We hung out in Arizona and we, I invited them into my apartment, sleep on my floor. We had a wonderful time. And then eventually it was time to go to the rainbow gathering. So we packed up our things, our backpacks, our survival gear, because it's an off the grid event and caravaned up to Utah where it was that summer in the Wasatch, I believe. No, it was the Uinta, excuse me, it was the Uinta Forest. And what was it about that experience in being this, in this off-the-grid, decommodified eco-village that influenced your thought and moved you in this direction to decolonize? Absolutely. So, Rainbow is essentially like a networking space of many 
for people who are interested in these topics. So when you go, you are able to experience workshops every day all the time because the entire event is a workshop. The entire event is an experiment in these ideologies on a practical face-to-face human level. And so for me, yeah, it definitely changed my life and still changes my life to this day. I still go to rainbow gatherings. I was just at one, a regional one in Hawaii on the island of Oahu in December. And it was just, it was wonderful. And yeah, I think that it's essential to free speech, to free gathering, to free living. It's the most authentic and large group of individuals engaged in intentional, peace-loving self-governance that I have encountered almost anywhere. And I've, you know, been a part of other moments of activism and movements of activism, like I've mentioned, like Occupy and Standing Rock. But Rainbow is really unique and special in the way that it functions because it's not a protest so much as a peace practice. And you can definitely gain tools and workshop how to become a better activist at rainbow but the focus of it is more toward regeneration and conservation and networking and workshopping so it's highly constructive instead of deconstructive and so you really get to live into the practices of like nonviolent communication consensus decision making conflict transformation all of those skills that we talk about as being necessary to build a more verdant and peaceful world, you really get to experience hands-on during that time together. Yes. So I love that you brought that up because some of my most transformative moments as someone who workshops on nonviolent communication, intersectional feminism, all those great topics, you know, you can work on nonviolent communication, but what about when someone's actually coming at you violently? And then all of a sudden you're in a space where you are in an anarchist space. So the goal is to not involve law enforcement. The goal is to diffuse it with your community, whether it's like a psychotic break or a violent outburst or a misunderstanding or whatever the or, you know, sexual violence, like all these things happen in the world. It's undeniable whether they happen within rainbow or without rainbow. And the whole point of rainbow is to experiment and to grow the strategies and to to hash out these strategies amongst ourselves and in ourselves as individuals as to what is the appropriate way to react to a situation where there's a predator within the village or if there's someone having a psychotic break. And what does that look like firsthand? What does that look like when someone's dealing with it right next to you? And how do you diffuse that? And that was so incredibly transformative for me, like all the different circles that were called over different moments of violence. And when I say a circle, it's like a council. A circle is called so that you can discuss these things in a an equitable and and truly invested way where people sit down together. A circle can be called for any reason and the people involved in the circle can be called for any reason. So but yeah, like calling circles together over violence so that that violence could be diffused and that those people who were being violent could be addressed. And I can say like every single time that a circle was called, whether it was for this or another thing, every circle was different. Every circle handled every single problem uniquely. And 
that was just an incredible thing to witness was that really it's about the adaptability and and definitely there are patterns that we can follow and that we can recognize in these events but handling them individually and handling them as individuals is one of the greatest things to take away from an event like this so that it's no longer just theory floating in the ether it's a lived experience rooted in particular examples And it's one of the pieces when I started learning about nonviolent communication and restorative justice and these different pieces of being able to exist outside the systems of the state, that it can look very different from what we might normally be used to, especially because in many cases it engages not only the victim, but also the perpetrator in order to bring about something that is more beneficial to all involved than simply punitive justice. Absolutely. It's a really... I could see how it's like a really radical thing to do because it is so different. And it's incredibly, for me, it's been an incredibly emotional experience and healing experience to witness successful events of nonviolent communication and reevaluation because like violence that has happened to me or around me has never been addressed that way. And so then to be in a space where I can witness it and participate in it is just really, yeah, really incredible. It does look quite a bit different than what we're used to. You have to be brave. You have to be uncomfortable. You have to be open and vulnerable. And But what comes out of it is so beautiful because it's rooted in this mutual aid and compassion since that the idea is that you know, we can change. It's not just about, oh, you did bad, you're going to be punished. It's, oh, you you did something that was hurtful, that was violent, and that's not how we're, we should be with one another. Let's come to understand that and let's be different together. And then from that time with the rainbow gatherings and getting to live into these experiences, how did your work then move to decolonize? So that inherently going to a rainbow gathering is the practice of decolonize or decolonizing or whatever way that people feel comfortable with the language to, to address the core of what's happening. So that affected me because it's a network of people who then were able to get to know me, see the work that I do and plug me into other communities and eco villages very directly, like very um, connectedly, because it wasn't just me like going on woofing to try and find organic farms. It was like me meeting face to face with different people who were looking for people to come help out with their farms and their homesteads because they were just there, a part of the culture. And it's kind of like just this incredible networking ground and workshopping ground. And so it informs everything I do because I've never been in a more radical space than a rainbow gathering. And That doesn't mean that there aren't radical people doing radical things, but I think that when it comes to the heart of what our movement is, which is a transformative movement, that is my favorite space to do it in, which doesn't mean that Rainbow doesn't have problems because there's still still humans involved, right? So people bring their problems from the outside world into the gathering, whether they're racist, xenophobic, whatever it is, they bring that energy to the gathering and that sometimes people think rainbow gatherings are like these magical spaces where nothing goes wrong and everything's pure love and it's easy to get that mindset because the energy can can be that way but you know 
leave your backpack unattended, you still might get robbed. Like, so rainbow gatherings are imperfect spaces and they're imperfect because humans are involved and humans bring their problems into these spaces, including myself. You know, we're entrenched in a culture that's toxic and suicidal. So naturally, like overnight, you're not going to go to a gathering event and or even after five years and sometimes longer, people still are bringing their baggage into the space. But the point is, is that people are trying there very actively to deal with it in a peaceful, radically peaceful manner. And that is what's so informative about Rainbow is that if you're open to trying, if you're open to truly being a part of the transformative movement of peace-based anarchism, then this is really the place to hash it out if you don't have access immediately to an eco-village that's already doing that. and it, Or if you want to just make more friends with other people who have homesteads and other people who are off the grid and other people who are doing it in unusual ways. And what I mean by it is just living alternatively. And um, yeah, that's why Rainbow is so important. And why I guess I, I really wanted to focus on it today is because I think that it's so rich. It's such a fertile ground for activists and homesteaders and philosophers and curious people. And then it's in that experiment space that you connected with other communities and eco-villages that were doing related work? Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, so this was back in 2013 when I first went and I had no, I had no experience, direct experience with people who were growing their own food as a lifestyle and people who were looking to do this kind of political experimentation. And so it was so pivotal for me to find it and then yes, be able to go and grow through it because it's not just the event, which is for me, I try and go for the entire month so that I can set it up and break it down since that's kind of the most rich work. That's like where you see the entire arc of what the event is and every, and you know, you're workshopping for an entire month instead of just a day or a couple days or a week. But yeah, then from Rainbow, I was able to find activists and meet them that I'm still connected with, that I'm going to be connected with the rest of my life who I can organize with. And we all know how important community is to permaculture and how important community is to to life. Then how have these communities that you've met up with and interacted with influenced the direction of your work and what you've been practicing as of late? I think that I'm really proud that I chose to go this route because I was like on the fence about going to grad school and getting a PhD in philosophy or something like that. But instead, I chose to go deep into my grassroots perspective mindset. And I wrote a book about my transition called Culture Board that is my experience as a young person who was going from St. Andrews University and Harvard University, where I spent a semester at each school, and these environments that were like highly controversial inherently. And so is rainbow. I mean, it's all, (laughs) it's all debatable. Everything has good and bad aspects. And so going from like kind of Ivy League settings, and being a really classically hardworking student, performative student into being like, oh, I'm going to finish school and stop going on that track and do this totally different, totally radical 
lifestyle that I think fits my personality and and heart better. And so the the last what is it seven years of my experience since I first went to my first rainbow gathering has really enriched me so much because I feel like as an educator and as someone doing social permaculture, I've lived in so many different eco villages, humanitarian aid events, backpacker hostels, just I've worked so many different jobs and so many different communities and it's really informed my ability to communicate and to be a part of these movements in a way that is healing. Sorry, my dog is barking. We have children and vehicles and all kinds of other noises in the background when we have these conversations. So a dog is definitely welcome along with us. (laughs) Okay, well, thank you. Yeah. As you've put all of this into practice, these experiences that began some seven years ago in 2013 and have had the life that you were living changed radically and dramatically, what does your work on the ground look like these days? So right now, I have had my work disrupted a bit, as everyone has with the the outbreak of the virus. So what I'm usually doing is workshopping, and I've been doing things like plant walks, and I've been working on a ranch recently in Arizona to help them set up their permaculture out in Maricopa. It was, a, it was the most from scratch work that I've ever done in a garden situation because the soil's really rough out in the desert in Maricopa. And, and yeah, there wasn't really anything too much going on when I first got there. So what my work looks like is mostly as an educator. And I do workshops with community gardeners about climate science. And I do workshop with entrepreneurs who are building their businesses. That's the focus that I'm involved in right now at this last few months. I've been talking with a lot of people who are trying to make better business models and integrate permaculture into their business models and also event planners. And I really think that that's so much fun is thinking about event planning and education planning. And so I'm consulting with some different teachers at boarding schools and Montessori's And then, of course, just my local community here, local permaculture community here, we're working on a speaker's cooperative and just supporting each other's projects. I'm pretty much involved in, like, I feel like I've got a lot of balls in there, but I'm really excited about it. I love love so many diverse communities of people, and I feel like I flow really fluidly throughout all of them. So, and that's in part due to Rainbow because there's so many different types of people that are involved in this work. And there's no one way that, that like a tribe looks or like a community appears like or talks like or anything, because it's all about, yeah, embracing that diversity and inclusion. So just workshopping, teaching, organizing, and helping people learn more about decolonization and how to set up eco villages, how to do conservation, how to how to do permaculture. That all all is part of my ecosystem. I like the big system planning part. I'm still early on in my career with permaculture. So I'm learning where I want to specialize more and more. But right now, love working with businesses, event planners, and yeah, anyone, anytime who's working in a garden, I'm happy to, to help out in any way that I can. 
So then would you say that a lot of this education and outreach through workshop, organizational development, event planning, is to help bring many of these ideas that may seem radical or alternative to the forefront to kind of end or break up this kind of hegemonic approach that comes from society on how we should do things to offer alternatives? A hundred percent. Yeah. Like I think that myself included, when I first started this work, I thought that it had to look a certain way. Like to be an activist, you had to dress, walk, talk and act a certain way or to be involved in conservation. You know, you had to be kind of crusty and you know, just wear Patagonia or what there's these kind of stereotypes that we form in our minds. And I think that the more that I've done this work, like for example, I was at a lecture in London a couple years ago at a fashion school where this fashion school was like, how do we make fashion more sustainable? We know that it's this huge thing that goes untalked about and it's unaddressed and we're and they understood themselves to be one of the biggest problems across industries. And I was so grateful to be there and to be a part of the conversation to help them think critically and workshop on that that idea. Because for me, like, I want to be a bridge from one community to another where, you, you know, sometimes people, sometimes we just, we're looking for something new. So we're trying to push away what doesn't look like us or what we're trying to reject something that is a little bit outside of our comfort zone. Or maybe they, they don't feel like the people we hung out with in high school or the people we hang out with now. But the future, really, in, in my opinion, is about us uniting as a people. And, and so we can each celebrate our differences instead of seeing them as the borderlands that separate us. We see them as the edges that connect us. Given that the audience of this podcast are largely permaculture practitioners who are engaged in the ethical work of earth care, people care, and returning the surplus that are familiar with principles, whether they come from David Holmgren or Toby Hemingway or many of the other great teachers who have kind of mixed and remixed and matched these different ideas. If we as individuals want to bring these ideas into our lives, where would you recommend starting? Where would I recommend starting? Something I've been recommending a lot recently to people in this time who are like, Eloisa, where do I learn permaculture? I've been recommending Heather Jo Flores' work, who's the author of Food Not Lawns. And they have just this incredible wealth and archive of free resources online, including an entire year-long free permaculture course. And a lot of the work that I do is rooted in Heather's work. And I think that besides my permaculture school that I went to, which is Urban Permaculture Institute of San Francisco, Besides that group, Kevin Bayek and Pandora and everyone else associated with that, Heather Jo Flores is my other biggest influence in the realm of permaculture. And I'm familiar with Heather and her work. We've been in touch off and on for years and years. Yeah. And because she's also doing a lot of work with the Women's Permaculture Guild and also doing some business development and like writing workshops for women. One of my friends here locally in central Pennsylvania is a part of that. And she's really been growing and doing some incredible things. So it's nice to hear more from someone who's been intersecting with her work. Oh yeah. I'm a big fan. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And we were in touch before being able to sit down today. And in those conversations leading up to this, you had mentioned about how you see rewilding as influential on what we can do as individuals to kind of like break out of that societal mindset. Could you share a bit more about 
how you see that working and where people might go with that? Yeah. So when I think about rewilding, so I'm not the most like literary permaculturist for sure. I have a lot of experience. I still love reading books in permaculture, but I think I'm just kind of giving my context for the word. So I think about it starting like in ourselves. So we're rewilding our kind of soul. And I think that has a lot to do with connecting with your inner child and healing trauma and allowing yourself to be spontaneous, make mistakes, change quickly, be imaginative, dreamy, all those things. And then rewilding your spaces, which is getting out into the outdoors, communicating with plants, animals, fungi, all living organisms, all parts that make up this material world that we live in and coming to have meaningful relationships with them, meaningful communication, you know, understanding what their needs are and what our needs are. And if we're allies or if we're more interested in certain species or certain bioregions or whatever it is. And I think that really the heart of increasing biodiversity and doing the regenerative regenerative work is becoming more well acquainted with these wild, extremely resilient species. And so, yeah, just, I think it's a holistic practice, you know, on a spiritual level, on an intellectual level. I heard that beautiful interview that you had with William Padilla Brown about genetic sequencing. And so like, I'm, I'm inspired to think about genetic sequencing and how powerful that can be for us as permaculturists. And I think that, yeah, just getting to restructure ourselves, our relationship with ourself, our relationship with our environment is this practice that is a little bit more wild and a little bit more messy than I think we can sometimes, I think society is incredibly structured as it is. And so sometimes there's this spontaneity and lack of structure that's really essential to the flow that that is the work of decolonize. To step away from the world and life that we live in and re-engage with the natural world in a way that kind of breaks some of that cycle and day-to-day routine that we might normally find ourselves in as we go from our family to our job to home to our chores and things like that to find some time and space within that. Yes, yes. And that's a really good connection because I think that breaking up those habits and breaking up the way the structures that dictate our norms is essential to our creativity. And that creativity is going to allow us to build this future that we're seeking and that we sense and that we are building. And part of that for me and part of why I talked about Rainbow so much, what links back to this, is that rainbow gatherings are groups of especially when you go to like the big national ones there are thousands of people who are all doing it their own way so you can get so much you know creative material because you talk to one family and they're doing it this way you talk to another they're doing it that way and you can also go on youtube and do the same thing and look up all the different ways there's a whole manifold of colors experiences tribes to associate with to pull from inspiration from and that definitely is a part of this kind of wildness in us is that creativity the ability to break from the structure and remember that there's so much potential there's so much possibility if we open ourselves up to it 
Do you have any thoughts on how to do this in a city or urban environment where we might not necessarily have access to wild or green spaces, but still want to engage in this work? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So depending on what city you're in, it's going to have different relationship with indigenous tribes. And I think that, so for me, I very intentionally went to study permaculture in the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area, because I had researched that some of the most transformative radical work that was hand in hand with indigenous communities was happening there. So I think a great place to start is looking at the Bay Area's transformation and looking at different groups like the Sigorti Land Trust or the Long Haul and looking at successful groups, even including UPISF, which was my permaculture school. They have a great YouTube video online that is one of the most incredible permaculture action movements I've ever heard of, which is they're trying to help out Marin County from a perspective that is informed by decolonization and informed by inequality and and address on a community level how do we save a community that is at high risk of being gentrified high risk of eviction and also high risk of flooding with as global sea levels rise so i think that a great place to start is looking at the San Francisco Bay Area. And that's why I went there. And there's a lot of information online. And I'm happy to also send some links over for anyone who who wants to find them. Or if anyone wants to reach out to me personally, like, I'm here for that. That's the work I do. If you want to, you know, move to an eco village, I had a girl reach out to me just last night who was like, hey, I heard you've lived in anarchist spaces. I've heard you've lived on organic farms. How how do I do that? So yeah, just, I'm a resource and there's so many resources out there and they're just, we're, we're just waiting to do the work. We're eagerly, happily waiting and ready. Are there any other thoughts that you have for folks who want to get involved and get engaged, who might not necessarily be able to head off to a rainbow gathering, but want to find groups and people who they can do this work with where they are? Yeah, definitely. So I think that, again, that's like going to be depending on what your individual needs are. So get creative, think about maybe make a list, start with like a list of your priorities and what you're looking for in your community. If you want to try out a bunch of things, then do that too. Like go to join your mushroom society or start a local community garden or join a local community garden or start a compost in your backyard. I think that everything happens step by step, day by day by day. And you don't need to, unless you really want to and you feel ready, you don't need to make like a huge, you know, overnight transformative shift where you quit your job, pack up all your bags and go. That works for some people. And that's the right thing for some. For others, the right thing is to simply do a YouTube search or a Google search, figure out how the heck they're going to start a backyard garden because of everything that's going on in the world. And start actively really integrating permaculture into their life and really going moment by moment into it. And as for decolonization goes, I think that getting in touch with other people who are interested in any way that you can, whether that's through a university, whether that's through some kind of like post online asking, is anyone else interested? Can we have coffee? Can we have a potluck about this? 
I know that there are regional gatherings, so that's also something to keep your ears up about if you're interested and you can't go to a national gathering. There might be one in your state. And if it's not in your state now, it might be in a couple years. So there's just, it's rainbow gatherings are always moving around and they're very dynamic. So it's good to be open. Like that might happen, maybe not right now, but maybe in the future. But yeah, like people are interested. People are out there, whether you're connecting with them online and you're going to be a pioneer in your community and you're going to look to these other places in the world that I've been an example doing it longer, or you never know, there might be a whole host of people already engaged in this sort of work just kind of right behind the veil or right right under your nose without even knowing it. Well, Louisa, thank you so much for joining me today to share about your work to decolonize and how that's taking shape for you, the influence of the Rainbow Gatherings as a place to learn more about this and put these things into practice and also to experiencing them in person. But as I always like to do before ending an interview, do you have any final thoughts for me or the listeners? My final thought really is just about structures and remembering that the structures that we're part of are going to define the people that we are and the environments we live in. So I really liked this phrase that I've used in a few of my workshops, which is, there are no first world countries, there are no third world countries, there are just over and underdeveloped spaces that work for or against the people and the ecosystem by design. Well, thank you for that and everything you've shared with us and for joining me today. Thank you so much, Scott. And that was Eloisa Lewis. You can find out more about her at newclimateculture.com and on social media at Nomad Soulful and at New Climate Culture. Near the end, Eloisa and I spoke about Heather Jo Flores. As I say, I've been in touch with her for years, and she's also someone who helps to support the show through her affiliate program. So if you'd like to save 10% on courses with Heather Jo or the Women's Permaculture Guild, use the code PCPODCAST when you register. Throughout this conversation with Eloisa, I was thinking back to the experimental practices I've engaged in in order to live into social permaculture, from launching permaculture convergences to visiting or living in intentional communities. These places served as vital opportunities to try out nonviolent communication, conflict transformation, restorative circles, and the other ways we can work together as human beings seeking to build permanent cultures that care for all life. The work is important to our long term goals but we need to see and experience them now before they're necessary. If you can attend radical gatherings or convergences once they reemerge from the pandemic, that's amazing. And if you can look up a workshop that someone has and attend, that's great. But I know, however, that that isn't possible for everyone. In the meantime, or while we remain indoors, what are our options? The first place I would recommend starting is with Marshall Rosenberg's Nonviolent Communication. Though Dr. Rosenberg has since passed on, his work continues to live and breathe through his book and the ongoing efforts of the Center for Nonviolent Communication. I'll also link to two previous interviews, one with Carl Steyer and another with Ethan Hughes, that explore nonviolent communication and conflict transformation, so you can hear other voices engaged in this work. I also encourage you to reach out to Eloisa to see if she is currently hosting any workshops on these subjects that you could attend virtually. Finally, This conversation with Eloisa was also just the first to begin looking at radical spaces and how we can begin the ongoing process of rewilding ourselves 
and working to decolonize our practices. If you know of anyone else working on these tasks who should appear in an upcoming episode, please let me know. Call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Until the next time, put your principles into practice while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.